Hello, and welcome to Rippercast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 9, Is the Solution at Hand, with special guest Stan Russo. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas, in the USA. Joining me today are the usual suspects, Howard Brown in Philadelphia. Hi, Howard. Hi, John. Glad to be here as always, buddy. Glad to have you also. We have Mike Covell in Hull in the UK. It's always a pleasure, guys. And in Calgary, this time, uh, Robert McLaughlin. Hi, Robert. It's great to be here. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be here again. Great to have you. And uh, joining us again this week from Maidstone, Kent, Paul Begg. Hi, Paul. Hi, everybody. And our special guest, who's coming up from us uh, to us from New York City, is Stan Russo. Hi, Stan. How you doing, guys? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Stan Russo is the author of the 2004 book, uh, Jack the Ripper Suspects, 70 Persons Cited by Investigators and Theorists. Uh, his most recent book is The 50 Best Movies for the Movie Fan, published in 2006. And he has a, another non-Ripper-related book, I believe, coming out um, in, uh, that we'll uh, speak about. Uh, during the podcast, and he's also the author of The 50 Most Significant Individuals in Recorded History, as well as uh, articles in both Ripper Notes and Ripperologists. Um, Stan, um, I'll shoot you with the obligatory first question. How did you get interested in the Jack the Ripper case? Uh, it's a very good question. I think it, I think it's a question that everyone should ask themselves as well, and uh, I have a degree in forensic psychology, so I was I was always interested in uh, unsolved murder. Uh, one of the things that is to my detriment, according to many people, and, and to myself at times, is uh, I don't have an interest in serial murder that have been that has been solved, and uh, I just like cases that are unsolved. I think that I have. Uh, a good investigative mind, and I, li- I like to go after stuff that isn't solved. That's probably why I like crossword puzzles, too. Uh, all right, and um, and you've written in, uh, in your dissertation on the case, but you just, you, you, uh, you've stated that, um, that, that no, none of the named suspects um, can be, quote-unquote, linked to the case. And in your opinion, what is, what is, what does it take to be linked to the murders, to be a suspect linked to the murders? Because a lot of people have a different interpretations on what links someone um, to the Jack the Ripper crime. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's true. I, th- I think one of, the, uh, one of the harsh realities of Ripperology today is that there are a lot of different definitions of what linked to the crimes mean uh, for a suspect. Some people believe that the only suspects should be those who were named at the time the crimes were committed. Uh, Just to examine that for one moment, I would think that almost the exact opposite was true in theory. In theory, anyone who was named at the time would have probably been investigated and cleared or investigated and dismissed. So there's an argument to say that anybody who was named during the events shouldn't be the murderer. Now, of course, that doesn't always work. There's, you know, there's extra evidence. And in a lot of crime scenes, 
or in a lot of crime investigations, you know, oftentimes investigators go back and they find an interview with somebody that leads them to more information on the case, and the, and the, the actual suspect or the actual murderer is somewhere in the files. However, there are, there's, a, there's an idea out there that since the person got away with it, he may not have ever been known. And I, and I am for that argument to the extent of it could have been anybody. And a lot of people, and this is going to come out as arrogant, a lot of people don't realize that it actually was somebody. We've gotten away from the idea that the case can be solved because it's become too hard. Linking someone to these murders at this stage is, is the equivalent of having the best theory and having the most information that has or answers the most relevant questions on the case. And it's very tough. And every time you come up with a new person or a new suspect who becomes that flavor of the month, more questions arise. When Francis Tumblety, for example was all the rage in the 90s. There's, there's no argument, or there shouldn't be an argument, that he has some kind of connection to this case. However, his suspecthood or his suspect status has opened up so many more questions than they answer. I personally do not think it's Francis Tumblety. I, I would actually stake my reputation that it isn't Francis Tumblety. However, I think he's the most important suspect in answering questions or proposing new questions that will lead us to the actual murderer that has been mentioned so far. Hope that answers it. Hmm, that, yeah, that's an interesting statement. Um, also, um, you uh, and you and I have talked about this somewhat before. In, in Ripperology, there seems to be a kind of um, two camps. Um, maybe there's s several, but the two camps that I can most recognize are those who approach the case uh, as histi historiography um, and those who approach the case from the criminology aspect. Um, you'll, you'll encounter folks who are interested in the history of the East End um, or um, the uh, police department, the radical movements, uh, the, the po poverty, the um, women uh, approach the case from uh, the women's rights perspective, stuff like that, and then you you get others who are interested in um, in true crime, for lack of a better word, who are interested in a good murder mystery. Uh, which camp would you right. fall into? Uh, definitely, definitely the true crime camp. Uh, in fact, of those two camps, I would probably be on the extreme end of the true crime camp, whereas. Um, I got into this case with the express mission of solving it. And I'm sure that most people, uh, th that's not new. I'm sure most people did the same thing. And, you know, it's proven a lot harder. And I didn't expect it to be easy because it was unsolved. When I got into it, in when I first started investigating it in 1997, 97 or 98, it was already 110 years old. So I didn't think it was going to be easy, but I came to realize that a lot of people have put a lot of effort into it and done a lot of work and come up really without the end-all solution. So I think, a, I think I would definitely be in that extreme end of the criminology camp towards saying the goal 
of researching this case is to get the solution. Now, I respect a lot of people who do the research end of it. I, I believe it's Chris Nelson or Chris Scott who is into genealogy, and I think that is very important. And I think in a case like this, a lot of different people utilizing their talents always help. However, I think that there's a, there's a point or a line in the sand. Everybody has the right to do anything they want to do. I've always said that. But I think the line in the sand really needs to separate the people who enjoy Victorian uh, you know, garb and wear versus people who really want to solve the Jack the Ripper case. And if, if you like the history of London in the, in the 19th century, that's fine. You're eventually going to get led to the Jack the Ripper case. I understand that totally. But there's some serious research that needs to be done here, and everybody has the right to do it. However, if that's not your interest, I think that that should be clear, and there, there's a definite divide. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Howard Brown in Philadelphia, you want to shoot some questions to Stan here? I sure would. How you doing today, Stan? Good. How you doing, Howard? All right, buddy. All right, I got one question here for you. Do you believe that it would be better for a new or a newbie uh, into ripperology to attempt to either eliminate a suspect, uh, work in genealogy to expand the parameters of the case, or to develop a unified theory with some holes in it to fill in later and run with the idea? Uh, broke up a little bit, but I think I got the gist of the question. I think that it's incredibly important and I believe I've always said this to you, I think that you have one of the uh, minds on a particular suspect and know more about this suspect than anyone I've ever spoken to about. If we would eliminate this suspect that you know about, imagine how much closer we could be perceived as getting towards a solution. Now, there are people out that, say, that could say, you eliminate one suspect, another one comes up. But you're still moving forward. And... It's not, again, it's not easy. No, no one's saying that in the next year we're going to have the solution. But rather than not doing anything, being proactive is where I, I like to go. I think that the more you learn about every suspect, imagine if you did intensive research on Druid that hasn't been done before, you found new information, and through that you're able to eliminate three major suspects. Wouldn't that be incredibly beneficial to the case? And I say that because obviously it would. Uh, I think that the genealogy and the other stuff is important, but I think the case has to always be in a state of moving forward. And I think there have been gaps in history. And I, I'm sorry to say right now, it's my opinion, that we are in one of those gaps of history where nothing productive or nothing moving forward in this case is happening right now. Now, that's not to say that people aren't trying. I just think that the majority is drowning out the status of the, the ability to move forward in this case versus just discussing issues on a, on a stagnant level, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Thank you, Stan. Thank you. Oh, okay, um, someone else. Uh, Paul Bag's having audio problems. So, um, uh, Robert in Calgary. I'm sure. Uh, I'm Stan. Uh, in an interview you uh, gave to Jan Oliver once, uh, you said that the motive is more important than who did it. 
Um, why did you say it, and what exactly did you mean by that statement? Uh, well, that's a very good question, and uh, I think that we have a we have a field of about a hundred hundred and fifty suspects, and you can make an argument that it's Druid. You can make an argument that it is Tumblety. You can make an argument that it's Maybrick. I mean, you can make an argument, and it's a bad argument for Maybrick, let me say, but you can make an argument for any number of those hundred suspects. I've heard argument. I mean, there's, there's an argument out there that it was Lewis Carroll. Now, as ridiculous of an argument as that is, you cannot disprove it. Now, I understand it's a researcher's job to prove their suspect did it. And in no way did Richard Wallace, and, and I'm, I'm, I apologize, I believe it was Richard Wallace, prove this, which is why Lewis Carroll is considered a non-starter as a suspect. However, motive is the most important thing I think we should focus on right now. Why were these murders committed? What happened to, make these, to get these murders committed? So far, and again, for the last 110, 120 years, and, and I've spoken to people as, as, uh, as little as two years ago who will tell me straight out, no hesitation, the murders were committed because Jack the Ripper was a madman who hated women. Well, okay, that's a theory. Now, anyone who, anyone who commits murder obviously is, is demented in some point. Anyone who kills women has to have some kind of anger towards women. However, saying that Jack the Ripper was a bad man and he hated women doesn't really get you anywhere. We've tried it. It doesn't work. Okay? It's not leading towards any conclusive progress in the case. Perhaps it's time to get a new motive and figure out maybe there's something else going on. Yes, he killed, and he killed women. However, that's not enough. The motive right now, if you can find out the motive... And, and I think about 20 or 30 years ago, there was a theory going around saying, if you can figure out the link between Mary Kelly and the others, then you have the murderer. That never panned out. However, if you can find the link between why Mary Kelly was killed or why that murder took place, that's another cog in the system of getting further along and understanding the motive. Mike Cuzzle and Hull, do you have a question for Stan? I certainly do. Hi, Stan. I'm Mike. Um, I'm all right, thank you. You you also wrote the book 50 Best Movies for the Movie Fan. What yes. would be your top five Ripper movies for the Ripper Fan? <laughs> uh, well, considering there's probably in uh, actual Jack the Ripper movies, probably only about, well, that's not true. I was thinking there's only about 10. But uh, I, I tell you, I actually liked From Hell. And I think that, you know, here, here's an interesting tangent I'll go off on in staying with this, though. Uh, I, I appreciated the movie. I was able to enjoy it. Now, of course, there were some ridiculous things. You know, uh, as far as I know, Aberline wasn't uh, a drug addict. And they, they sent the ear before they killed Eddowes. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But I liked the movie. I thought it was interesting. Uh, the 1988 movie with Michael Caine is great. Uh, I think it was a 65 movie. Uh, Jack the Ripper, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there, there are a lot of good movies out there. I hear they're making another one, and I'm going to see it. I'm, I'm a guy who loves movies, and 
uh, I try to see everything that comes out. And uh, and as far as my favorite Ripper movie of all time, I probably have to say Time After Time. That's my favorite movie, Thank too. Thank you. And... Um, we we had a show a few weeks back on uh, rippers in the movies, and I and I couldn't get away from talking about time after time. I think um, it it's a great it's a great movie, and it, it's one of those movies where you obviously have to suspend obviously have to suspend disbelief at science fiction. But uh, you know, I can see a lot of things in movies that I feel a lot of people can. I can see I can like. Uh, you know, romance movies, I can like uh, action movies, uh, dramas, comedies, and everything like that. And Time After Time has a really nice blend. It has a nice blend in the beginning of the, the history of that era and what's going on, and a contemporary feel to it when they go, you know, and then they come to San Francisco. It, it just, I think it's a really well done movie, and it's one of those movies where even though it's not that crazy action type movie, there's moments of, you know, of character interaction that say, you know what, this is a good movie. It, it's one of the, I, I'm enjoying watching it, even though it's not what I expected it was, or what it, what it, I thought it would be. Right. Um, now, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about your dissertation that's on Casebook website, and this is an article that originally appeared in Ripper Notes uh, concerning the suspect, Dr. Hewitt. Um, could you go into a little bit of uh, describing... Um, uh, how the Dr. Hewitt story emerged and and um, and all, all the, the twists and turns that his tale tip. Uh, sure. Well, well, first of all, I have to uh, say that Dr. John Hewitt is no longer a suspect. He's been conclusively exonerated, and he joins a, a list of about four people that have been named as Ripper suspects who are, without a doubt, not Jack the Ripper. Uh so he is basically a non-suspect in, uh, in as far as you could actually, like, where a lot of people will say John, James Maybrick is a non-suspect. That's not true. James Maybrick is a suspect with not a lot to it. John, Dr. John Hewitt is a non-suspect. So it, it's very tricky how he came into it. Uh, there's the old story from Walter Sickert, who's a suspect, about... Uh, a room that he stayed in where the lodger uh, was a veterinary student who he believed was Druitt or Druitt and uh, like a couple of different spellings of the name. And it was backed up by one of his friends, uh, one of two brothers, the Sitwell brothers, I believe it was Osbert, in the 40s that he had told them a story about a lodger. Uh, this is possibly, possibly where the, the famous book from uh, Belloc Loans, uh, the 1910 book The Lodger came from. But in, in basic cutting to the chase, Dr. John Hewitt became a discovery of Stuart Hicks. And he had postulated that because Sickert was telling this story about a, a veterinary student who had stayed in this room and had been a lodger during the, during the murders and had come home with blood on his clothes uh, one night, that it could be a misremembering of the name because of the time frame. And I believe that as far as Sit Sitwell states, he had been told this story in 1905 or something along those lines. And again, Bear with me because it's a very convoluted story of how Dr. John Hewitt became a suspect. Well, the key aspect is uh, 
it's a conjecture of he was misremembered as it could be this person, and Hewitt is close enough to Druitt, and Hewitt was a, a, a doctor, a veterinary student, I believe, and I could be wrong about that, but uh, Hewitt's the closest one that we can identify as this as Sickert's veterinary student. Also, uh, there's a link between the 1959 information discovered by Dan Farson where this Hewitt Druitt uh, three different spellings of Druid came from, which eventually led towards Frederick Bailey Deeming in Australia, who had used a variation of that name when he fled the country in the 1890s. But the story kept going around and around and around, and I believe it's just a conjecture of a theorist saying, well, this is the guy, this is, this, this is that veterinary suspect who uh, Walter Sickert said, somebody told him lived up there, and he was conf he was in an insane asylum or some kind of a, an asylum in in 1888. And if you could prove that he was not in the asylum on those nights, you had your murderer. First of all, that's an awful theory. It's an awful thing to say. If you could say he was out about London, here's your guy. Just because he's in an asylum, just because his name is close to Druid, just because Druid is a suspect, perhaps is a miscommunication, it, there's not enough there. And what happened was, uh, some people, one famous ripperologist in, in particular, got behind it. And then there was a little head of steam with this person. Not a lot, but so much steam that it eventually was proved this person was in was confined during the nights of the murders, and he was exonerated. So the whole thing behind Dr. John Hewitt is anyone can be. My dissertation tried to you know analyze it. Anyone can be a suspect. You can make enough of an argument about anybody. It doesn't mean that it's them. Plus, it doesn't mean that it isn't, unless you come up with the actual evidence to prove what you're saying. It it doesn't mean it's them. But again. You know, it doesn't mean it isn't. Jack the Ripper was someone, and it it could be somebody we've already named before without that thing that sets that suspect apart from everybody else. Uh, how do you square uh, so Stan, all... uh, oh, Go ahead, Robert. Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. You go ahead. I was going to ask you, how do you square all of these lodger stories? Because, I mean, you have the, uh, the uh, assumed that uh, the... Sickert's veterinarian student was British, so you have a British lodger. You have uh, Forbes Winslow, uh, I believe it was, had the shoes, uh, the, the silent shoes of a uh, American doctor lodger. You have the German landlady on Batty Street, whose lodger was a foreigner. I mean, all of these um, came came from somewhere. I mean, how do you how do you square all these different variations of the lot, all these lodger stories? Uh, I, th I think you can square them in one word, fa uh, faction. Uh, you know, they had lodgers, and lodgers are, you know, when somebody stays at someone's house and is an adult, they don't have to report back to where, to the person that they're staying with. You know, uh, so anything that goes on with the person who is renting a room from you may seem out of the ordinary, given what's going on at the times. Now, if there are more than if there's more than one lodger story, and you're identifying more than one lodger, immediately you have to eliminate one of those people. Now you can eliminate both of them, 
because there's no proof, and all you have is basically someone who's got a suspicion. So when, when you're surrounded, if you're living in an area, I believe, when you're living in an area that is you know, being stalked by a serial murderer, and then you have somebody who you don't know, who's renting a room from you, is out late, and is possibly mysterious to you, you start to, you know, think, and you start to theorize, and you start to say, this, 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 and it doesn't, sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't, obviously if there's more than one, somebody is, you know, over-exaggerating, it doesn't mean that those lodgers aren't going out and doing things that aren't, you know, criminal, however, you know, a lot of it is just just flat-out suspicion. Okay, Robert, you want to chime in here? Yeah, I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit about uh, you talking about uh, uh, who should be dismissed or who shouldn't be dismissed or or certain facts. Um, Because we have people, we have tales from people like uh, uh, Joseph Gorman, who of course claimed to be Walter Sigurd's illegitimate son, who brought forth the Royal Masonic Conspiracy. We have people like Donald McCormick, um, guys like these have brought a lot of myths, misconceptions, and falsehoods to the case. But uh, um, I believe you think that we should not dismiss everything that they have to say. That we have to look carefully because there might be some hidden truths or there might be some avenues of what they say worth exploring. Um, could you uh, discuss that maybe uh, with us? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I'm getting a little feedback, but I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, that's a very important. It's a very important concept to understand. Uh, first of all, Donald McCormick. Let's use him as a as a first example. We know that he lied. Now we know that he lied because we have other evidence to pull his lies together, and we also have recorded by somebody that he told him he was lying, and none of his stuff has ever panned out to be the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have access to papers that eventually, that, that, hit, that were created, that his lies were created from, if that makes any sense. So, in the papers that he saw, and we know he had full access to, to Dan Farson's 1959 papers when he was making the show in the writing of his book. There's stuff he may have seen that led him to his theories, which are invented, and everybody knows they're invented, really, um, they they do help the case in one aspect. Once you make the un- once you make the leap that yes, this is a person who invented most of his stuff. Why did he invent it? What did he see to make him invent it? And how does that relate to the case? You become you have a better understanding of the case. I feel in the in the in the Joseph Gorman Sickert side of this. It's a little trickier because, yes, he's a liar. And, you know, rest his soul. I I know that he passed away. However, he has told lies about the case. One of the most important questions is, why did he tell these lies about the case? Now, when, when you start to investigate why he told these lies about the case... You look at the lies because you want to know why why these lies. Why not Jack the Ripper was a, a seven foot you know seventy foot dinosaur? Why, why these specific lies? So you start investigating what's behind these lies, and you see 
there's something there. And, again, let, let me illustrate, and I've said this plenty of times to a lot of people, the Royal Masonic Conspiracy Theory is not true. However, that does not mean that there is no Masonic connection. Let me bring up the, the Goulston Street Graffiti, or Graffito, for just a moment. The argument that it was made by the killer is a valid argument. It doesn't mean that it's true, but it's a valid argument. You could say it was made by the killer or it was made by a kid. Now, what was written on there has always led people to believe that, oh, if it was written by the killer, then Masons had to write it. This is where you get major elements within the Royal Masonic Conspiracy Theory. That doesn't make sense. If a, if a Mason was the murderer, he would not have written that on the wall. In fact, once you start investigating Joseph Foreman's lies, you start making realizations about the case, such as the person who wrote that graffiti, if, they, if he was Jack the Ripper, wrote that graffiti specifically to warn somebody or to, to say to somebody, this is done because of you. That person... Can anyone hear me? Yes, I can. Yep. Actually, I'm I sorry. I, I, lo I lost something. So, uh, I see the Goulston Street graffiti as a message from a non-Mason to a Mason. A Mason would not say, we're blaming ourselves for something, which is basically how you can break down the graffiti if you were to go that Masonic route. With the double negatives and the way the message is written, and we do have the, and, and you know, you can argue that it wasn't written the way we think it was written, but if you were to argue the, the most, the majority opinion of how that was written, it's a message blaming Masons. And why would a Mason write a message blaming Masons? Or if a Mason killed somebody, or a group of Masons killed women, why would they write a message calling attention to themselves? So, hopefully I'm, I'm not getting too convoluted, but in lies, there are hidden truths. Now, I don't believe that Dr. Gull was the murderer. First of all, he's a Mason, and his connection to the case is really based on the Masonic conspiracy theory. What purpose would, would it serve Dr. Gull murdering these women and then writing a message pointing back to himself or his, or the group that he was murdering these women for. So, in, in analyzing what Joseph Gordon is lying about, I've gained a better understanding of the case and learned new aspects that before, I think, had not been addressed. So, I guess in conclusion, in all lies, there's a reason why that person is lying. There was no reason for Joseph Gorman Sickert to hold on to, or Joseph Gorman, I apologize. I, I'm pretty sure, you know, I think we can be relatively certain that he was not the son of Walter Sickert. However, it connected in some way to Prince Eddie. Now, that's another question for another time, another argument for another time. But there has to be a reason why this person held on to this information for that long a period of time and then just decided in 1973 to come out with it. And nobody so far has ever provided why he did that. I think I found it out. Um, Paul Begg and, and Kent, I want to get you into this conversation. Do you have anything to comment on what Stan's been saying just now? 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that the, uh, particularly with Joseph Gorman, uh, or Joseph Sickert's story, um, having met him, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was some sort of connection between him and Walter Sickert uh, at some point. And I, I, I mean, my, my thoughts for a long time were that the Jack the Ripper side of things was grafted on to what little bit of story he had about his forebears uh, and, and, and his relationship to Walter. But it's, it's really difficult. Uh, you, it's, uh, it's very easy to sit and speculate when, well, of course, we don't know the people concerned. I'm lucky enough that I met Jess and I actually got on with him and I liked him a lot. And I think he was a strange thing to say in a sense, but I think he was a very genuine man in, in his personal elite. And I always remember sitting with him, uh, and I can't now remember what the particular argument put forward was uh, to demonstrate that the blind diaries were, were fake. He looked, he looked polarized by that statement. Now, it, it suggests to me, anyway, uh, as, you know, sitting there talking to him, that that was faked. I think uh, he'd be, whoever gave him those diaries, I think he genuinely believed that they were the, 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 the real McCoy. And he was uh, was shocked when he found out that they weren't. So I'm not sure that Joseph's not that there isn't something behind Joseph's story. Uh, and it's certainly, in my view, worth investigating. Whether, of course, it sheds any light on Jack the Ripper is uh, is another matter altogether. Well, well, I I mean I agree, I agree with that completely, and I think that is answering the the question beforehand. You know. We can. I think we can all agree with that. A lot of the stuff Joseph Gorman has said has not come to fruition. So we, we throw the term around lie, perhaps too easily. But you know, it is what it is. These are unfactual statements that he's making, and I think it's you know, as Paul said, there there may be something behind it. Now, is it connected to Jack the Ripper? Who knows? But it could be, and. Because Jack the Ripper is his mechanism for revealing these lies or these unfactual statements, I think you have to at least assume while you're investigating why he's made them and the timing of when he's made them is, is, is as important as him making them, I feel. You have to conclude that there is some kind of connection and it could be, as Paul said, as simple as the people who he was connected to had always had this connection to Jack the Ripper or had always been connected in, in however. In well, I was with... Sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I was with uh, Ellen May Lackner, who I, th I think was Joseph's cousin. Uh, and she was saying that... Uh, to, to Paul Feldman and uh, and to myself and Melvin Fairclough, that she was she was saying that there was something going on in the family in the past when Joseph was a child, uh, and so there's still a possibility that whatever this is is that it was something that Joseph um, grew up with. It's part of the the family story, and um, that over the years he was trying to make sense of it. Now, one of his close friends was a man called Harry Jonas. And it seems that Harry Jonas was uh, with Joseph when he was talking to the BBC people who were doing that television program when, uh, when Joseph first told his story. And again, I wonder, uh, Harry Jonas is supposed to have known Walter Sickert. Uh, it still has to be established uh, whether that was the case or not. But uh, 
if he did, was Harry Jonas fe feeding uh, Joseph stories. Uh, so there's all sorts of stuff in the background there. Jo Joseph may well have been, may have had the the disparate pieces of a story, which he was trying to weave together and make sense of. And maybe people were also feeding him other bits of information which he was trying to make sense of. And and so it's very important to as. Stan has been saying to look at the origins of these these fictions. It's as it's as much important to look at the the origins of what we classify as being the false tales, if only to just establish that they're false and, and where they've come from and why they were created, as it is to look at the the, the more established Ripper uh, Ripper history. So. Uh, but it's it's up to the historian or, or the researchers whether he wants to go down that road or not. Some people just don't find it worthwhile pursuing and uh, the Joseph Sickett story. Abs absolutely, Paul. You know, a lot of times what what you have now, and you know, Howard will back me up on this. I mean, everybody here probably will back me up on this. When you mention royal conspiracy theory or you mention any suspect or anything having to do you could even mention the word you know the name Annie Crook immediately you'll get a distasteful reaction there's no reason for it, it as if someone has offended that person by mentioning that which is a part of Ripper history now whether it's not true is, a, is an irrelevant concept when you bring up anyone like that that has anything to do or is is in any way connected to aspects of a flawed <laughs> theory that has been disproved, there is no reason why you should get a reaction like that. And to give a reaction like that definitively shows a closed mind towards the investigation of this case. And just one more thing on what Paul brought up. Uh, Ellen May Lackner is actually related to another suspect and I, Paul probably knows this. She's related to James Kenneth Stephen. And in that, now, th there's a story going around, and I'm not sure if it's in the 60s or the 70s, where she actually told somebody, I believe a reporter, that the authorities knew that Jack the Ripper was James Kenneth Stephen. Now, J.K. Stephen has been a suspect for 38 years. I'm sorry, 36 years. I, my math is bad. But uh, this is a story that now brings together another person who's connected to the royal conspiracy theory. And there are so many elements of it on, the, on its own face that to just dismiss everything, it's just bad investigation. Ima imagine if you were a police officer and you interviewed a witness who wasn't great, who wasn't very great of a witness. Do you dismiss every single thing that comes in contact with that person? No, you investigate, you take exhaustive measure, measures to try and solve an unsolved murder. And I just get the feeling that a lot of people out there will dismiss something before it's even brought to their attention based on, you know, based on biases that show their true colors as researchers. Dan, I have a question. I'm sorry, Mr. Beck. I'm sorry, I keep cutting in here. Uh, I have to say there that I, I think there is a slight difference. I, I think there's a matter of prioritizing historical research, and uh, we would look at what one might call more viable suspects, uh, and and pay less attention to the to the ones that we would consider to be less viable. I know Martin Fido would would, would certainly agree 
on this that because he he is very dismissive of the, of the uh, of, of the non suspects and uh, uh, non material so he wouldn't give much uh, shrift to to investigating say Dr Stanley or looking at the uh, the Dutton papers or things like that because uh, they haven't been shown to be real people they haven't been shown to exist there's not much point speculate what, what you when you do start to look at it it's 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 a lot involves a lot of speculation he will look more favourably at the Tumbleties and uh, and the and the Kosminskis and the Druids and, and so on and so forth, uh, and I can understand that. I I I follow that route. If I were if I was um, as everybody knows, if I'm asked who I think is the most likely suspect, when I respond, I think it's Kosminski. That's what I'm really saying is that Kosminski, as far as I'm concerned, is the tot of the to- tot of top of the totem pole of Ripper suspects. I don't think Kosminski would. Ripper. I just think he's the one that's the most important for us to investigate. Dr. Stanley would be somewhere down at the bottom. If I reverse around my interests, though, I would love to know where the hell the Dr. Stanley story came from, because you have Leonard Matters, respectable journalist, uh, a politician, not that that necessarily conveys honesty on anybody, uh, probably quite the contrary, but... Uh, uh, but uh, he's a man of, uh, of standing in the community. Now, why would he invent this whole Dr. Stanley story. Why would he, why would he do that? Um, maybe there are thousands and one reasons, but one of those is possibly maybe he did see something in an Argentinian newspaper uh, or magazine or something that gave him the idea. It would be great to know where that story came from. It would be great to know whether he came out of his imagination or it came from some other source. Um, so it's it's the uh, the, the prior it, what i'm saying is that it's the prioritizing it doesn't necessarily show that somebody's got a complete another closed mind it's just that they prioritize their suspects a little and and i and i agree with you to an extent and w- what i mean by i agree with you to an extent is i understand that there is a definite divide between druid and dr stanley however i think that there has to be a realization at one point or another with uh, we can't get what we need to get from this suspect. Now, I know you're not a favored suspect, but the one you would place at the top is Kosminski. And, you know, we discussed this a lot on, you know, on message boards. Uh, we, you know, we disagree. And there seems to me that, I mean, if he's your top suspect, how much are you going to invest into going after him without getting anything from him, from him, and and not going after other suspects who might be as viable? Because in my in my opinion, if you were to put five suspects in a room, I could name five suspects in a room, and all you could say is, uh, "I like that one because of your research," but you can't say that one did it over that one. So. I think that with as much time that's spent on these suspects, and you know, I know you've spent time on Kosminski, and you know, uh, Marty Martin has spent time on uh, Cohen and other suspects in Tumblety, and and Stuart Evans on Tumblety. I think there has to be a time, though, in my opinion, that you know what? I've spent so much time on this person looking for that magic bullet. I can't find it. Perhaps other suspects deserve that same investigatory research. Now, again, some people get bogged down, and I'm not saying that any one of you have gotten bogged down in it. However, I think that, to me, 
Druid is as good or as bad of a suspect as Kosminski is. Now, if I were to spend 20 years on Druid, just as an example, and come up with nothing to the extent of progressing him, wouldn't you think that there had to be a point where I had to say to myself, you know what, maybe this isn't the guy, I believe it is, but I can't get anywhere with it. Maybe I could use my talents towards another suspect, I might be able to get somewhere with it. What do you think about that? I mean, that that's the way I look at it. I think, well, let, let, let's just step back a little bit. Um, what I meant while well, I'm saying that I think he's top, uh, top of the uh, totem pole is simply that we have the head of the CID and the man with overall responsibility for the investigation, Swanson, both apparently or seemingly saying that uh, Kuzminski was Jack the Ripper, in their opinion. Now, the thing about Anderson is that although, as has been pointed out, he was abroad at, uh, well, at the time of the early murders and so on and so forth, the fact is, is that he would have had, albeit as a distillation, uh, information on all the suspects. And so would Swanson, and Swanson would have had a little bit more information, perhaps, than Anderson. Now, if Anderson and Swanson, and, and let's not go too deeply into this, because it's, it, it's detracting from the main thrust of the discussion, but... If you have Anderson and Swanson both saying that, in their opinion, the evidence uh, was against Kuzminski was the strongest that they've got, then that must put Kuzminski at the top of, top of the totem pole. Um, and the others will come, come down that, that, that list. That doesn't make them any the less viable suspects. It just means that in the eyes of, uh, of, of Anderson and Swanson, that Kuzminski was the best. So I don't actually concentrate an awful lot of efforts on Kuzminski. It's the role that he's, he's uh, found himself in uh, has meant that an awful lot of other people have spent an inordinate amount of effort trying to prove that he wasn't Jack the Ripper. And so that means that uh, you have to analyze all the arguments that they have put forward. And so therefore any discussion of Kuzminski does tend to take a hell of a lot more time than uh, similar discussions about other suspects. So, and and again, I mean, uh, to go on from that, now I am one human being and my efforts can be devoted uh, into, into numerous uh, avenues of Ripper inquiry, but I'm not solely uh, interested in the suspects anyway. Um, who Jack the Ripper was, funnily enough, isn't that important to me. I'm more interested in the social history of the period and the time. So, uh, all I can do is really conduct research into as many of the suspects as I can. And in some instances, I do a lot of work, uh, or have done a lot of work, in, in looking at, uh, uh, let's say, the Don, uh, sorry, the, the, um, <coughs> the Dutton papers and, and looking at, at other cases and investigating a few bits and pieces around, around Sickert and talking to Joseph and, and all stuff like that. And with the A to Z, of course, I'm looking at all the suspects anyway, and, and I'm update, we're updating that book constantly uh, with, uh, with new information as it emerges on other suspects. So I'm not closed-minded to everybody else. And in fact, I don't actually think Kuzminski was probably, well, uh, Jack the Ripper. Just fascinated to know how the hell he became Anderson's primary suspect and why because there's obviously if he was there's some information out there that we don't have 
So I'm, I'm trying to answer your question. I, I agree with you entirely, um, but I, I think that, uh, again, for, for single human beings, we have to prioritize what we're doing and maybe looking at some of the less likely suspects or the more and increasingly improbable suspects uh, is something that we can't do. Well, I, if I if I can, Howard, if I can just respond to that, I, sure. I think you're 100 percent correct in that, Paul. And I didn't mean to come off that it's that you're dismissing other suspects or other researchers are dismissing other suspects. However, the way I look at it is, if I was a suspect, if I was a theorist who using the word suspect oriented is bad because it's got bad connotations. If I was a theorist whose entire goal was to solve this murder and believe who the su and believe that the suspect was just as an example James Maybrick and spent 20 years just as an odd number or or even spent 30 years trying to give the world the evidence that I thought existed on this suspect only to come up not doing anything for the case other than you know just you know, here's some things here, here's some things here, but not giving what I intended to give. Do, don't you think that I, I owed it to the case as a person who wanted to solve the case? I owed it to the to the case to look at other suspects, and that's all I was trying to get at. Everybody. Yes, I do. I agree with you I, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, I was only I was only saying that. Look, when it comes to me, I'm all solving the case. I'm I'm one of very few who believe in that. Other people have other varied interests, and I respect the varied interests. And the work that you've done, Paul, and the work that Martin Fido has done, Stuart Evans has done, has been an immense help to me in my investigation. And and I thank you for it. And there's a a modicum. Of, there's a a respect that I see that because of the message boards you don't get and, and and I think that's disgusting but you know I, I think you understand where I'm coming from that you know uh, it's tough to explain but I, I think that the work that has been done before is so important however I'm a person that I have my suspects and and you know I have different interests but when I start investigating my suspects again and I can't get anywhere with it I think I have to come to the realization that maybe I'm wrong and I just, I don't see that enough, and it could be the fact that just people have other interests in the case, and I could be, you know, putting myself and my own interest onto other people, which is a mistake, but I agree with you completely. All right, Stan, I have a question uh, regarding uh, your suspect, Terry. Uh, sure. Uh, Patricia, Patricia Cornwell takes a lot of heat, perhaps rightfully so, by the majority of hardcore ripperologists. Presenting her theory about Sickert under the premise uh, that she maintains, yet she has spent a lot of money in actually bringing ripperology to a lot of people otherwise indifferent or ignorant of the case. Do you think her methodology is less important than the visibility she gives the field, and in particular, Sickert? That's a very tricky question. It's, well, it's first actually. Off, you haven't really uh, said what, what your, your theory is. Um, on, on the My theory or her theory? Well, Howard asked you about your theory. Is that correct, Howard, at the beginning of that question? He said, given his theory on the case. Right. No, I didn't ask Stan what his theory was, but um, I noted Walter um, Sickert has a part of it. Right. What what Howard what Howard knows, and a lot of people don't, even though it's it is public knowledge, is that uh, as crazy as this sounds, I believe Jack the Ripper was 
two people, Walter Sickert and James Kenneth Stephen. And that's a, that's a matter of public knowledge. Now, immediately, people will laugh at that. And that does not shock me one bit whatsoever. But if anyone had heard the beginning or the middle where we discussed the royal conspiracy theory, uh, they might not understand that. I, I understand that that's a flawed theory. And I do not believe that... Walter Sickert or James Kenneth Stephen were part of the Royal Conspiracy Theory because the Royal Conspiracy Theory did not take place. They also were not Masons. There are so many things that lead me to believe that they were Jack the Ripper that are in direct opposition to the Royal Conspiracy Theory that that actually is one of the reasons why I believe they were the murderer. Now there's of course a lot of other evidence which I can't go, which I won't go into now because you know, uh, we have time constraints. However, asking me a question about Cornwell is important because I believe that one of the murderers was Walter Sickert. So, what I think about Walt Patricia Cornwell is uh, she did do a good thing for the case by bringing it to more people than it would have been brought to before. However, it's important to know that just having quantity is not a great thing in the long run. Quality, of course, is very is much better than quantity. So if we had 10,000 ripperologists that were brought to the case because of this, that's great. But if none of those ripperologists really were doing anything, you know, making any contributions, it really doesn't do anything. However, what she's done is show, and clearly show, that what you can do now in this world of Ripperology is make or create a flawed and disprovable theory on a given suspect, and you can eliminate them from consideration. Now, even Paul has said, you know, he thinks there are aspects of, of Sickard that are very interesting. Paul is one of the few people who believes this. You could mention Sickert to a hundred ripperologists. You'd probably get 95 who would laugh at you. You'd probably get 90 who don't want to hear anything further, and you'd probably get 85 who will never talk to you again. However, before she came out, a lot of people have been talking about Sickert. Sickert has been not only mentioned alongside Jack the Ripper for almost a hundred years, over a hundred years, but four different people have written books on his possibility as as a suspect. There is so much to involve or connect Walter Sickert to Jack the Ripper that does not necessarily mean he is Jack the Ripper. But because of Patricia Cornwell's notoriety and her arrogance in what she's doing, Sickert has become the non-flavor of the month. When more research should have been put into discovering more about him, she has actually turned him as, as towards a non-suspect much worse than he was after the royal conspiracy theory was disproved. So, in answer to your question, I hope, Howard, because again, I go in a circle to get to, no, get no, to where I'm going. Sure, no. uh, she has done good and bad. And what is more important is she has not done what she said she would do. I think that's the only thing we should judge her on. We should not judge her on whether or not Sickert is a good suspect or Sickert is a bad suspect. 
as a researcher, she has not followed through in what she claimed she would do. That's all. Now, taking Sickert from there is up to anyone who wants to do it. Me, personally, I believe he's one of two as Jack the Ripper. And I believe that before she came out with her book, where she claimed he killed everybody in Europe for a 20-year period, which I think is absolutely ludicrous. But after she came out with her book, I wrote an article for Paul's Magazine, and it was very, it was misinterpreted by a lot of people. And the bulk of that argument, and, and the, the article basically stated, here's what you can do. You can name a suspect and create a, an absolutely ridiculous theory about that suspect, and people would dismiss them. Now, what I did was I used a little-known person named James Kent. And James Kent was a person who was one of, I believe, two people who discovered the body of Annie Chapman. And he has almost nothing to do with the case other than he saw the body, and afterwards, I think he either him or his friend covered it up, and then he went and had a brandy. But what I did was I created a false theory about this person, that he was Jack the Ripper, and he, and he needed to kill to feed his alcoholism. And I did that because it was told that he went and had a brandy afterwards after seeing the body. Now, nobody really understood what I was doing, but what I was trying to do was, I called James Kent Jack the Ripper, and then I created such a, an, a preposterous theory that no one would ever think he was Jack the Ripper. That's what, that's what Patricia Cornwell has done. Patricia Cornwell has come up with such an absolutely ridiculous theory that she has, in the minds of many people, el basically eliminated Walter Sickert because there's no way he could have done it that way. But you know what? There's other ways he could have done it. He could have been Jack the Ripper outside of her outlandish theory. That's the possibility. And, and the example, the prime example is, outside of the diary, there is the possibility that James Maybrick still could have killed all those women. And somebody wrote the diary, or the diary is fake. But you cannot eliminate James Maybrick from consideration as a suspect. You can say, you know what, through the diary theory, it's not a great theory, and there are crazy flaws in it, and you know what, a lot of time shouldn't be put into it because it's one of those, as Paul said, on the bottom of the totem pole, which is what I believe. However, you cannot conclusively eliminate James Maybrick as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. The same principle should apply to anyone, especially Walter Sicker, regardless of the fact that I believe he's one of the two murderers, just because Patricia Cornwell has created an outlandish theory about him. So, to sum up, she has done good and she has done bad. But most importantly, what has to be remembered <laughs> is she has not done what she promised. Um, that's like, an interesting like, point. Uh, let me uh, just uh, chime in real quick. Okay. That's an interesting point you made that just then. Um, it, it's also the case, and this is this has came up um, concerning uh, Ivor Edwards' piece in the le uh, last Ripperologist, uh, in that, uh, my opinion at the time, I didn't express it on, in public on the boards, but I talked to Howard and people like that, is that the candidacy of someone like Tumblety doesn't rise and fall on whether or not he was the baddie street lodger. And so, um, in, in suspect elimination games, um, it can, it, you know, uh, it can be that with that statement that you just made could could be said of, of a lot of the um, the main suspects.
Um, don't you agree? I, I I actually completely agree. And uh, to uh, put a you know a lighter tone on it, I never thought I would agree with Ivor Edwards, but uh, I am completely agreeing with him that regardless of whether or not Tumble was the Batty Street Lodger, that should not eliminate him from being a suspect. Now, in to, to add to that, Francis Tumblety, in my opinion, was not Jack the Ripper. That is not where that statement must end. In my opinion, the most important suspect to come to light for the progression of this case is Francis Tumblety. And the reason why I say that is his reemergence in the 1990s opens up so many questions of what was going on with the police during that time that are connected to the Jack the Ripper case that you have now a totally new understanding or there should be a totally new investigative understanding of the murders at that time. The fact that he was being watched throughout the fact that he was arrested the fact that he was followed to New York I mean and again I, I know that there are a number of researchers who are going after Tumble T for every single thing he did to try and learn a timeline that have more information than I do about Tumble T I know the basics about Tumble T but I think that he like I said is one of the most important suspects I don't think he's Jack the Ripper but I think he's one of the most important suspects to come to light for the progression of solving this murder. Stan, uh, I've got to jump in here for a second. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, go ahead. I just Mike, wanted to, or, or whoever, Paul. Yeah. Which I, I just wanted to backtrack momentarily to, to Patricia um, Cornwell, to what was said about Patricia Cornwell. There were just just two two small points that I'd like to bring up. There. One is that um, the, the theory basically wasn't Patricia's to start off with. It was uh, John Grieve. Now, she says at the beginning of her book that uh, how she, she met uh, John Grieve, who was um, a deputy assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And he suggested to her that, that Walter Sickert was a suspect worth looking at. Now, I've never been in a position where I could ask John what, why he made that suggestion. But in a way, if I was uh, somebody who was, uh, in, if I had been in Patricia Cornwall's position uh, and had been given that piece of information by a deputy assistant commissioner at Scotland Yard, I think I would have picked up that ball and run with it as well. Now, whatever the reasons are that convinced Patricia that Walter Sickert was Jack the Ripper, uh, she then undertook a lot of research and she was told information about the fistula for example she didn't make that up uh, so, so a lot that, that actually happened yep so so all of this 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 uh, the, so the, the theory that she's built up all she had was was a layer upon layer which may now have been stripped away and shown to be wanting um, but I mean at the moment I, I don't know uh, entirely because uh, as everyone knows I mean Patricia Cornwell uh, has hired Keith Skinner to undertake research for her. Now, I regret to say I'm not party to, to what that research is uh, is pulling out, but if anybody's going to pull out anything about Walter Sickert to defend Patricia's theory, Keith is going to be able to do it. Um, but and the other the, and the other thing is is that is that the the, th the thought that people have about Patricia Cornwell being arrogant. Now, I've met Patricia Cornwell a couple of times. Um, once. Uh, 
quite recently when she gave a talk at Scotland Yard in in support of the uh, to raise money for the for the the crime museum that, that formerly known as the Black Museum. And I find it incredibly difficult. I, I've never found her to, to, in those few brief meetings, I've never thought to come away from, from those meetings thinking that she was an arrogant person. I, I know that she has this reputation. Uh, but with regard to the Ripper book, yes, there was a lot of stuff that was going on that, was, uh, that may, may suggest arrogance. I think there was a genuine fear um, on her part from the hostility that she got, and that she may have re responded to that in an in a, in a over strong way that may have may have appeared arrogant but I sometimes wonder you know I'd hate to well I wouldn't mind being in a, in a position of having a hundred million dollars and, <laughs> exactly. and, and having publishers do what I ask them to do but by the same token I'm, I mean look at even, even people like Phil Sugden is asked to have uh, uh, to, to put a suspect information at the end of his book I was forced to have uncensored stuck in the in the title of, of one of my ripper books which I didn't want to have uh, the pressures on somebody like Patricia to do things, to be more upbeat perhaps than she wanted to be, must have been absolutely enormous. I mean, she has books published simultaneously around the world in translation, in, in audio tapes, television companies uh, after her uh, speaking engagements, all of these things. At what point, maybe, did she really in her book want to say, well, I, I think that this is the truth, and, and, and she's forced to say, I believe this is the truth, and so therefore appear to be a little bit more, more arrogant. I, I do know that she, she said at the Scotland Yard talk that she will not have the title Case Closed in, in, uh, in the revised edition that I, I, she's working on. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we should be a little bit easy on, on Patricia Cornwall and, uh, and, and, and and try and look at her work with that little bit more of, uh, of, of respect than she's been getting. And I certainly don't like all the insults that, she, you know, like misnaming her and, and, uh, and other things that you see going on the boards. She wrote, she did, you know, why was her, her book was, n was no worse than, than a great many of the other theory books that, that are coming out. It was a damn sight better than most. And that's if my I book. Can, yeah, if, if I can respond to that, I, I again, you know, I'm finding myself agreeing with you again, Paul, which is fine. I'm happy that I'm doing it. Uh, and my opinion of her arrogance comes from a direct letter from her agent where when she came on TV, she had announced to the world that she would stake her reputation on it. And, that, and at that point, I was working on my theory, which in turn was changed by my publisher. You know, I, mm. I didn't want to. I never wanted to come out with just a suspect book. I had a 500-page book where I had presented my entire theory, and you know, it had been changed. So I totally, I uh, understand how publishers can change stuff, and it looks different than what was intended. However, you know, in in never meeting her and only having that one contact with her, and yeah, you you just get that because we do what we do and follow this case and it, it there's just a little bit of a there's a divide and you can call it arrogance i 100 percent agree with you that the names outside of that should never be used and i've never i don't believe ever used that and I, I you know i do respect her for coming out with a book however she did stake her reputation on it and failed and has not responded to that now again 
this is she's this, responding this in a sense that she's doing a revised edition so and has hired hired keith skinner to to undertake research for her and, and things like this so at the moment I, I guess she's not ready to say that she's failed she she obviously still believes in what she she wrote and and is is, is, is still carrying the ball is still running with with that ball uh, i guess that if uh, if keith comes up with evidence that, that shows that Walter Sickert was not and could not have been Jack the Ripper, um, then she'll, she'll I, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that, that she'll stand up and say, okay, fine, you know, that, that's, that's the way it was, that's, that's the way it is. Uh, well, I, didn't, I, I, I took my best shot and that's it. I, I hope you're right. And again, uh, you know, a lot of people come into this wanting to solve the case, thinking they can solve it, and it becomes this massive piano on your back that you can't break. And, uh, you know, I wish her the best, and obviously I think that, you know, she's wrong in her theory, and we'll see what the new book, I, I, I know Keith's work, and I think it's great, and I'm looking forward to reading the new book, I read her book, and, you know, there are some issues I have with the book, but also there was some information there, so mm. I, I think, again, uh, I think, again, good and bad, and I completely agree with you that there are much worse books out there. Robert? Can I jump in here for a second? Yes, please. Uh, yes, um because we've been talking about elimination of suspects and information, but I'd like to uh, talk about evidence that's inclusionary, um, because are there aspects or angles from uh, Patricia Cornwall book, Cornwall's book, or somebody that we've overlooked, uh, Jean Overton Fuller, who wrote the book Sickard and the Ripper Crimes in 1990, um, are there aspects or angles of those either of those books that you support or you think there are productive avenues um, that you've, you know, that have led you to your theory, or, or just generally? Uh, well, Stand. again, very, uh, yeah, again, very good question. And uh, you know, I have the uh, Gene Overton Fuller book, and uh, there's always, you know, I've read most of the books on Sickert, um, working my way through the Sturgis book, which is, I believe, 37 million pages long. So it's taken me a little taking me a little time, but uh, I'm sure that once I finish it, uh, there's going to be information there that I didn't have before. Uh, one of the interesting, I mean, I, I gathered the Florence Pash stuff from the Gene Overton Fuller book, and also the direct connection to some of the art. Now, immediately when I say art, some people will cringe. I don't believe that, you know, what... Uh, Patricia believes that you know all the murders were committed and then paintings were painted of them. Or I don't believe in the the singular art connection. However, I do believe that there is there are elements of uh, Sickert's hero evocative of the murders, and that's Hogarth, and that's brought out uh, brought out by Fuller. And again, that's led me to learn other stuff about the other suspect that I that I. Uh, favor working together and that information has proven you know incredibly fruitful so i think with every book that comes out um again there are certain things that are good and certain things that are bad and theories don't have to be proved true to be beneficial to the case so um you know every book that has been written on sickard i haven't been able to read yet but in in every book that i do read i learn a little more and Again, I don't have that magic bullet. I just have a theory that I feel explains a lot more than any theory out there. And I'm 100% willing to admit that I could be wrong. However, I haven't, I haven't seen a theory that explains more than mine.
Can I ask you, uh, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, um, how many victims uh, do you believe um, were killed by the uh, Sickert uh, Stevens tandem? Uh, can, can I give a, a half answer, or can I give a... I, I'll give the half answer of six a and a half. Six and a half? And, and here's why I say six and a half. Uh, I believe that Tabram was a, a victim, and I believe it went through Tabram through the Miller's Court murder, and by me saying that, you're probably wondering why I didn't say Mary Kelly. And, again, there are people who are cringing in listening to this, but I don't believe Mary Kelly was killed that day. And, you know, a lot of stuff has come to light, and there's a lot of stuff that's just dismissed. But a lot of this stuff is dismissed based on, I believe, a bias of what you feel the Ripper had to be. If you believe the Ripper had to be Montague John Druid, then that person had to be Mary Kelly. I understand that. However, in my theory, I don't place any constraints on Jack the Ripper. My theory flows with the case. So, I believe the woman was not Mary Kelly, but getting back to your getting back to your question, I believe it was Tabram through the Miller's Court murder and Alice McKenzie. And Alice McKenzie I say is the half one because I believe she was she was killed by James Stephen alone and done specifically to get Aberline out of the West End. And for the people who know why Aberline was in the West End at that exact time, it makes perfect sense to do that. Okay. Um, Stan? Go ahead, Mike. I've, I've got a question. What are sure. your views on the theory that J.K. Stephen uh, used the Bacon Code to create the Golden Street graffiti as a message, and who do you think the message was intended for? Um, I missed I miss the beginning of that. Sorry, what are your views on the theory that J.K. Stevens used the Bacon Code to create the Golston Street graffiti as a message, and who do you think the message was intended for? Well, uh, this is where I wish, uh, a very good question, and this is where I wish that I would have had my book published as I originally wrote it in 2002. Uh, I believe that that was a message. And I believe it was a message to three people. And you can argue that the Jews are Masons and the Jews were three people. And in my theory, there is a, an incredibly high-ranking person, is about the best way I can describe it, that James Stephen and Walter Sickert despised. And this is on record. It's a factual piece of information and I believe that the murders were committed to get back at him and two others who did something they shouldn't have done and this explains the tone of the Goulston Street graffito it also explains why I believe there are six murders it explains why Elizabeth Stride wasn't overly mutilated it explains why Martha Tabram's murder is different than the others and you know it, it explains a lot of information so I believe that that message was written as a direct it was a direct message to one person in particular who if I told you you would not believe me at all uh, can we guess 
<laughs> you, 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 uh, let, let me say, you can guess and you wouldn't come close, but go ahead. Okay, no, I'm just joking. Uh, we are at about 70 minutes. Um, so, does uh, anyone have any uh, final questions for Stan Russo while we have him on? Yeah, that's um, just, just go, one. Go, go ahead, right back to the beginning. Uh, goes back to the beginning of the talk when he was talking about Dr. John Hewitt. Can you remind me uh, why Dr. John Hewitt is thought to have been Sickett's? Who, who suggested him as a Sickett's unnamed veterinary student? I, I just can't remember. I, I believe that it became a convolution of closeness of names. And... The Sickert veterinary student was written about in the 40s, very briefly, and then the tricky part about that is, which I may not have talked about before, I believe Donald McCormick, who we know had written a lot of stuff and invented a lot of material, connected that to a letter he saw while doing research for Dan Forreston in 1959, which we know now was in re direct reference to Frederick Bailey Deeming. Now, right. Donald McCormick used this information to eliminate Druitt as a suspect using Sickert in order to promote his own suspect, who he claimed was Ostrog. Now, what happened was, now that he has done that and backed himself up in other books... It became a matter of record, which was backed up in the 40s by Sitwell, but it was connected to Druitt, really by McCormick. And then, because of the discovery of Dr. John Ewart, which was similar, and in the 1959 papers that were sent to Dan Farson, which directly relate to Frederick Bailey Deeming, it mentions three names. One of them was Druitt, another one was Druitt, spelled differently, and I think there was a Druin, and that was one of the aliases that Deeming used, but McCormick used it against Druitt and against Sickert, and Stuart Hicks used it to connect Hewitt as that person, which we don't know if they ever existed. This could be a creation of Walter Sickert's mind in order to continue telling stories about Jack the Ripper. Because mm. um, <coughs> Sickert, uh, the, the story goes that uh, Sickert name, could name the, uh, the, the, the veterinary student uh, and that he actually wrote it in the margin of a book that was destroyed during the Second World War. But it was Nick Warren, I think, um, who did a search through the uh, records of the Royal Veterinary College, which, which are outside of Scotland was the only veterinary college in Britain at that time and found that the only person named Hewitt uh, appears to have been um, a George Alwyn Hewitt who apparently lived at Aldershot and died in 1908 uh, and we, we do know I, I gather that, that um, in 1891 uh, there was a medical student living at Six Mornington Crescent who was named Waller or Whaler, W-H-A-L-E-R. So there, there were other options, I think. Um, but Absol the ab oh, sorry. Ab absolutely. I think that one of the primary things in understanding this aspect of the case is the, 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 
the story may be fabricated. And mm. I believe the book the book was Casanova's Memories or some, Casanova's Memoirs. Memoirs, that's right. Sit, sit, yeah, sit, sit, Sitwell had said that the, the name was scribbled in the margins, but then the margins, uh, the book was lost in uh, either the Blitz or, or something else. So, you know, you have a lot of stuff that is contingent on one story told by Walter Sickert, who's a suspect himself, and then expounded or expanded upon by a person who is known to invent stuff which le- which has led you to another su- which has led the world to another suspect who has been conclusively exonerated so it's it, it's a big circular event that yeah. doesn't lead anywhere but it's good to research you know why because you find out more things you find out things such as um, you know there's no such person as Vasily Konovalov i mean that that's an in- that's an invention so immediately in going through the circular motion, you're learning more about the case, and any little thing helps, I believe. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about, about Sickert and the veterinary student, of course, is that uh, Walter Sickert painted a, a picture which is called Jack the Ripper's Bedroom, which uh, we have every reason to believe was a painting of his own bedroom at 6 Mornington Crescent. Um, and so, <laughs> if... if did he invent that story of the, the veterinary student uh, who the, uh, the old couple believed to, or the, who, with whom he was lodging, believed to be Jack the Ripper? Did he, did he invent that story to mask the fact that he made an admission in a painting that he was Jack the Ripper? Interesting well, little thought, not, not one of well, I particularly... Well, well, we, well, we know a lot of, uh, of history about Sickert from a lot of the people who have written about him and friends and saying that he went through Jack the Ripper periods. Now, again, that in and of itself doesn't mean he was Jack the Ripper, but we have a person who was obsessed with Jack the Ripper. And yeah, that, as he that, was with a number of other things, but yes, that's, sure, uh, you know, sure. there, is the, there, there, is the, there is the material there. I mean, you, right. you can build a case against him. There is material there to do that with. And it, and it would, would be stupid to, as you say, to just throw, throw it out. But, but understand that a, a lot of people in the field now are doing exactly what you're saying. Well, they're doing exactly what we think is now stupid to do by throwing it out because of a dismissed theory. And, again, you have to look at the lies. The lies and how they were formed and why they were formed. And, again, dates. There's a very important reason why I think Joseph Gorman does not reveal what he knows or what he was told until 1973. And for a lot of people nobody's been nobody has ever been able to answer the question why did he wait till 1973 if he knew it in 1939 well there's a, there's a very simple answer in 1970 Walter Sickert is named as a suspect by Donald McCormick only to eliminate him and eliminate Druitt in 1972 who is the who is the suspect that's named next James Kenneth Stephen so let's say for one example for one moment that it was Sickert and it was Stephen, hypothetically. There's no reason to start telling lies about the murders if the two suspects are not named because nobody's looking for them or nobody's discussing them. Once they're named, now you can start revealing lies about them to, dis- to dismiss them. It's, it's the same theory behind uh, Robert Donson Stevenson going to the papers or going to the police to talk about Jack the Ripper if he had committed it. Now, people will say that that's a possibility, but they refuse to admit that the other is a possibility with Joseph Gorman. Absolutely, yeah. 
Okay, guys, um, we're going to have to wrap it up. We're going to um, be having um, Paul Begg back on, I believe it's uh, two weeks from today. And um, I definitely want to have Stan back on also. Uh, this did turn out to be kind of like a Sickert show, but I'd like to have another Sickert show when we uh, cover specific suspects, if you don't mind, Stan. Not at all. All righty. Uh, you have been listening to episode 9 of Rippercast, titled, Is the Solution at Hand? And Stan Russo in New York City was our special guest today. Thanks again, Stan, for coming on. Uh, thanks again for having me, guys. I really uh, I really enjoyed it. Anytime. I, I really enjoyed it, too. And we had in Philadelphia, Howard Brown. Good to be here. And take care, Stan. Same, Howard. And Mike Cobble was in Hull in the U.K., Always a pleasure. Thanks, Stan. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Mike. Nice talking to you. And uh, in Calgary this time was Robert McLaughlin. Uh, great to be here as always, and I hope to see you at the 2008 U.S. Ripper Conference in Knoxville, Stan. Uh, I absolutely will be there. Good talking to you. Wonderful. I hope to be there, too. And, and Robert, are you going to be back in Edmonton next week? Yes, I will. I'll be joining you from Edmonton as usual next week. All right, good deal. And in Kent, in the UK, Paul Begg joined us again. Thanks a lot for being here. I've enjoyed, on, enjoyed it again. Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I, I did as well. It was a great conversation. And um, next week, um, we'll have uh, episode 10 based on the 10's torso murders. So you all tune in for that one. I apologize for the audio difficulties we were having during the first part of the show. But on my end, it certainly improved over time. And that's why we kind of wanted to let this show run a little long today. And not only this was a good conversation, but I wanted to get in as much good audio conversation as I could. So thank, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining us today. And um, we'll see you next week.